how is it possible that so many wonderful things can all converge on the same weekend, at least in your, if you're in West Michigan. It's like we've been laboring under the weight of winter for so long, and finally spring is bursting forth in celebration. You just got to witness Bowden DeHaan's baptism this weekend. We're going to baptize Eloise and Brighton. The table is just ahead of us. It's graduation weekend across the street. All of these seniors we've been walking with and loving on for four, sometimes five, and even in a couple of cases, six years are now walking across the stage out into whatever it is God has in mind for them. It's Mother's Day, that day each year meant to stir up in us the best memories of our childhoods and the most primal affections for our moms. And it's tulip time here in West Michigan, carny dogs and fat balls and cotton candy and wooden shoes and Dutch dancers and parades. Oh my, all of it converging and, as if that isn't enough, it's the fourth Sunday in Eastertide. We're still shouting, Christ is risen, and though the Easter lilies may have faded, the Alleluia songs continue to be sung, celebrating Christ who left the eternal communion with the Father and the Spirit who entered into the finite realities of our creatureliness. He took on what we are so we could become like he is. He suffered, was crucified, died, and was buried only to burst forth in resurrection, blowing up that grave and offering to us life, abundant life, and as if that isn't enough. This year marks the 10-year anniversary of Pillar's reestablishment. It was officially reestablished in the fall of 2012, but it was in the spring of 2012, it was Eastertide 2012, that life began to foment here at Pillar. It was like, it was like a, a spring breeze. You could feel it, but you couldn't contain it. Kristen and I, my wife Kristen and I, we were invited that spring, that Easter tide of 2012, to come check it out. We had heard the stories of Pillar's struggles. They were describing themselves as a dying congregation, but they also had this amazing vision for what God might want to do still in them and with them. They called themselves a church for the city, committed to reconciling divisions and raising up leaders and redeeming the city and renewing the church, and we were beginning to fall in love, so they invited us here that spring to preach and to have conversation. And I, they, they said, you could preach from whatever Bible passage you want, which is incredibly generous on one level. But on another level, the Bible's big. It's hard to narrow down just one. So for whatever reason, and I don't remember why now, I chose John 11, the story of the raising of Lazarus. Now, if you were around this online worship experience or at Pillar last Sunday, you'll know that's the same story we heard last week in just a preview. It's the same story you're going to hear next week. My subtle way of saying the Bible is inexhaustible. You cannot find its bottom and you cannot ascend its heights. We can always see new things. Let's keep looking, keep turning, looking at the story from a different angle. So listen to John 11. Now, a certain man was ill. Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. Her brother, Lazarus, was ill. So the sisters sent a message to Jesus saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And when Jesus heard the message, 
He said, this illness does not lead to death, but rather to God's glory so that the Son of God might be glorified through it accordingly. Though he loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, when he heard that he was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then Jesus said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said, Rabbi, the Jews were just now trying to stone you there. And are you going there again? And Jesus said, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Those who walk during the day do not stumble because they see the light of this world. But those who walk at night stumble because the light is not in them. Then he said, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep and I must awaken him. The disciples said, Lord, if he's only sleeping, he'll be all right. Jesus was speaking of his death. They thought he was merely referring to sleep, so he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. I'm glad I was not there so that you may come to believe. Come, let us go to him. And Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. When Jesus came, Lazarus had been dead four days already. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, some two miles journey, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary already to console them about their brother. And when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him and she said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know God will give you whatever you ask of him. And Jesus said, your brother will rise again. And Martha said, I know he'll rise again at the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, though they die, will live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Martha said, yes, Lord, I I believe. You're the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called Mary and told her privately, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And Mary got up and went out quickly. Now Jesus had not yet come to the village, but remained in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were there consoling her saw that she got up quickly, they went out to meet her, to, to follow her, thinking she was going to the tomb to weep there. And when Mary came to Jesus and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who were with her consoling her also weeping, he was deeply disturbed in his spirit and greatly moved. And he said, tell me where you've laid him. And they said, come and see. Jesus began to weep. And the Jews said, see how he loved him. But others said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? When he came, again, deeply disturbed to the tomb, the tomb was a cave, and there was a stone lying against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. But Martha The sister of the dead man said, Lord, there's already a stench. He's been dead for four days. And Jesus said, did I not tell you if you believed you'd see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. 
I know that you always hear me, but I'm saying this for the crowd standing here, that they may come to believe that you sent me. And after he said this, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out. His hands and his feet were bound with strips of cloth. His face was wrapped in cloth. And Jesus said, unbind him and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's John 11 through verse 44. If you wanted to find it on a Bible you've got near you, this is the moment in John's gospel when everything shifts. The 10 chapters that precede it and the 10 chapters that follow it. This is the chapter where there's no retreating now. There's no slinking back for Jesus into some other agenda, some other way. There's only one way now. It's, it's, it's the trial, it's the arrest, it's the crucifixion, it's the grave, only to rise up in resurrection. This is the moment that sets all of that in motion. Before Jesus stood with Mary and shouted out, Lazarus, come out, he stood before Martha and said, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, though they die, will live, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Resurrection and life. Resurrection and life sounds like a great way to make our way to the table. Jesus said, I am the resurrection before the resurrection. Before Jesus himself had been raised from the dead and before he would raise Lazarus from the dead, Jesus said, I am the resurrection. It's like the overflow of his person. It's like the consequence of his life. It's not just a future event that will one day happen and it's not just some massive theological claim. It's the great longing of the human heart. All we've longed for, looked for, hoped for, waited for, wanted is realized in Jesus Christ. I'm the resurrection. Too often and too quickly, we can turn the Christian faith into things that are important to it, but secondary, not primary, derivative. We want a circumstance to change, and Christ can change the circumstances, but that's not the point. The point is always Jesus first. We make the Christian faith a rule to follow, or an ethic to abide, or a, or a value to vote, or a philosophy to think through, or a theology to argue, or a doctrine to memorize, or a culture to embrace, or a piety to hold, or a church to join, or an option among many, or, or, or an inspiration to find or a religion to, to be a part of. And all of those things might be mightily important to the Christian faith, but they're all secondary to the Christian faith. Jesus says, I'm the resurrection. And when we mislocate our affections and intentions on that which is secondary, we find ourselves in, an, in a labyrinth to which there is no end or a cul-de-sac we can't find our way out of. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. Jesus is the beginning and the end. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He's the bright morning star. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the root of David. He's the lamb that was slain. Jesus is central. Ken DeCreasy Dean in a book titled Almost Christian, which critiques the faith of American Christianity through the lens of the faith we've given to our teenagers. So it's not a critique of the teenagers themselves, it's a critique of the faith we've taught them. She calls it moralistic therapeutic deism. You've heard this before, basically be nice, feel good about yourself, and believe in something, which is a far cry from the heart of the gospel. Listen to what she says. What we can say with some certainty 
is that American young people have enormous trouble putting faith into words. It was unclear whether the young people we interviewed were unfamiliar with religious language or just uncomfortable using it in public. A number of youth we talked to thought talking about religion at school was illegal. The difficulty escalated when the conversation turned to particulars. The name Jesus was especially absent from our interviews. The name Jesus was especially absent from our interviews? What kind of a faith are we giving our teenagers? Wait, what? It's not a rule to follow, a practice to have, a church to join, a religion to be a part of, a feeling to attain, if devoid from the one, the person, Jesus Christ, who is the resurrection. I'm asked with some regularity how Pillar tries to navigate all of this social angst and cultural complexities and denominational divisions. And I don't mean to sound trite, and I don't want to make simple something that is so complicated, and it is very complicated, but my responses remain pretty uniform. We're trying to follow Jesus. We're trying to go the way of Jesus. We're trying to be near Jesus, and the closer we are to him, the closer we get to what we're longing for. Jesus says, I'm the resurrection. Andy says, I'm the life. Is he, is he like emphasizing resurrection? Like, no, really, really, I'm the resurrection. See, and the life. Or is he, or is he caught up in the same current offering a, a new view? I'm the life. There are two words in the New Testament for life. Bios, which is what it sounds like, Biology. Stub toes and hangnails and flesh and blood and organs and your finger burned on your oven range and the taste of fresh sweetness when you eat something good. Biology. Bios. I love biology. I think I minored in it. I lost my diploma, so I can't confirm it, but I'm pretty sure I minored in biology in college like 25 years ago. I love life. I love life on a cellular level. I love growing things. I have 16 goldfish in a pond I built in my backyard, an 85-gallon pond, just because I love living things. But you know what happens to goldfish? The same thing that happens to all biology. They die. But I love it anyway. I love, I love biology. I love ribosomes and chromosomes and mitochondria. I, I love it all. There are 37.2 trillion cells in the human body held together by some gravitational magnetic force, I think it's called quantum mechanics, that keeps us from becoming like a melted stick of butter out of the microwave. Somehow we're held together by these spinning cells of life, biology, I love it. I've always wanted to be a Golgi apparatus. Here's a picture of a Golgi apparatus. Do you know what a Golgi apparatus is? The Golgi apparatus is that part of a cell that takes in other parts of cells sometimes broken parts of cells, modifies them, repackages them, and sends them back out into the cell to do their job better than they could have done it before. Who doesn't want to be a Golgi apparatus? This is why I need a sabbatical. I love life, bios, but you know what happens to bios. We all know what happens to bios. It happens over and over and endlessly, bios, dios. All living things die, I think Rabbi Kushner once said. I don't need a rabbi to tell me all living things die. I know this by experience. And we can look around the world, and you can pay attention to your own lives, the big mortal realities of death, and all the little ways we die. 
That's what happens. But there's two words in the New Testament for life, bios and zoe. Zoe is bios invigorated. Zoe is bios redeemed. Zoe is bios raised to a spirit power and sent back out into the world better than it was before. Zoe is bios taken in, repackaged, modified, and sent back out for the goodness of God in the world. Zoe, Jesus says, I am the zoe. I am the life, life, full, whole life. He takes on all of our bios, stub toes and hangnails and flesh and blood and organs, ribosomes and mitochondria, which is a big deal, by the way, even the Golgi apparatus. He takes all of that on himself so that he might pick it up and offer it back for a much better purpose, Zoe. Jesus said, I am the life, before he raised Lazarus from the dead. He wasn't just giving Lazarus an eternal life. He was giving Lazarus life here, life now, and you too. So 10 years ago, Eastertide of 2012, life was beginning to stir here at Pillar on the corner of 9th and College. This self-described dying congregation, which was not the best marketing tool to call a pastor, was beginning to experience new life. Kristen and I were here. We were, we were invited to preach one Sunday during that Eastertide. We, we, we caught the vision. We heard the stories of hope, a church for the city, a church not interested in just survival, but a church committed to reconciling divisions, and we had seen enough division in our own lives in the world to want to be a part of that, and raising up leaders, 3,200 college students across the street, and we get to speak a little, a little word into their lives, and, and redeeming the city, and renewing and the whole thing, we started to fall in love. And I preached a sermon from John 11, and... I have no memory of what I said, and I couldn't even find the file, and no one has said to me that was such a great sermon. No one talks about it, and I'm only bringing it up now because of what God did among us over the course of the last 10 years. College students catching a glimpse of the beauty of the gospel in a post-Christian world because Jesus says, I'm the life. Little ones, how many babies have we baptized and people have we baptized in the last little while because Jesus said, I'm the life. From one small little service to now four services over three locations if you count the online community because Jesus says, I'm the life. You should check out the warehouse, it's going bonkers. And now we're gonna move this recording to a live stream in the fall because Jesus is the life. And I'm bringing all of this up, not to pat ourselves on the back, but to keep us focused on what's real, what's primary. All of that is secondary. All of that is derivative. All of that is consequence. We focus on Jesus, who says, I'm the resurrection and the life. I'll give the last word to C.S. Lewis in a book titled Mere Christianity. You may have heard of it. Biological life and spiritual life is so important then I'm going to give them two distinct names. The biological sort, which comes to us through nature, and which, like everything else in nature, is always tending to run down and decay so that it can only be kept up by incessant subsidies from nature in the form of air, water, food, etc., is bios. The spiritual life, which is in God from all eternity and which made the whole, universe, the whole natural universe, is zoe. Bios has, to be sure, a certain shadowy or symbolic resemblance to Zoe, but on the sort of resemblance there is between a photo and a place, or a statue and a person. A person who changed from having Bios to having Zoe would have gone through as big a change as a statue which changed from being a carved stone to being a real person. 
And that is precisely what Christianity is about. This world is a great sculptor, sculptor shop. We are the statues, and there's a rumor going around the shop that some of us are someday going to come to life. Come to life. Come to the life. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And he who is the resurrection and the life promises to give us life at the table. So as you are where you are now, you're invited. If you believe Jesus is Lord and acknowledge him as Savior, you're welcome to partake of communion in this way. Maybe you've got some bread and wine or crackers and juice. It's the body of Christ given for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. If you're not at that place in life or faith, please don't feel pressure or coerced or manipulated. It's an opportunity for you to think about where you are in life and what, what purpose do you pursue and what is ultimate meaning. The ensemble will lead us as you come to the table. Come for all things are ready.